So the question is, we've been going through this faith series, but I, I asked Dave, I said, what about fear, right? What about fear? And, and so I, I was like, what, what are we all afraid of? What are the things that we're most afraid of? I know for me, I'm afraid of death, like most people, right? I'm afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of where I'm going when I die, just the process of dying. Uh, most people are afraid of public speaking, the fear of public speaking. Anybody af- not afraid of public speaking? Some people uh, like to do public speaking. Some are afraid of. So anybody afraid of spiders? Fear of spiders. Yeah, the whole crowd's oh, uh, fear of missing out. That's the millennial fear. Fear of missing out. FOMO. Thanks, Bill Herbert, on that one. And then the uh, tomorrow, everybody's afraid of the IRS. <laughs> April fifteenth tomorrow. If you haven't got your taxes done, that one guy just ran out. Oh, see you next week, <laughs> or in a couple years. Um, but I, I, when I'm doing this, you know, Pastor Dave, he's like, do some Google searches and find some stuff on fear. And so I did a Google search, and it, and it brought up an image, and it was, and it was the image of all the, United, of all the states in, in, in America and, and what, they're, what the state is, is fearful of, like what the thing they're most fearful of. So I thought that was a good image. And, and for myself, I was like, okay, let's look at this. Florida, fear of sleep. Like, wow, Florida's, they're all afraid of sleeping. I kind of thought maybe it's just because their, their, their population's a little older. Maybe they're afraid of falling asleep for that reason. Um, Montana, where I grew up, Montana and Washington, but Montana is afraid of heights in Montana. Uh, I, I'm that, I don't know why. There's not a lot of really tall mountains there, but there's some. Um, New Mexico, they're afraid of the dark, those wimps. <laughs> New Mexico. Uh, Texas. Where everything's bigger, they're afraid of everything. Oh, <laughs> uh, Wyoming and North Dakota. Now, if you've ever met anybody from Wyoming and North Dakota, they're afraid of nothing. Okay, they they fear nothing. Um, Nevada, where we all have gone to, where some of you went to get married. I won't say all of us went. Some of you in Nevada, they're afraid of commitment. <laughs> That's right, baby, I do. <laughs> and then here in California. We're afraid of success. Like, really? The most successful state right now with billionaires, and we're afraid of that. Okay. Um, so we're all, we all have a fear. And we've been, we've been working on this, on this faith thing for five, six weeks now, and, and Pastor Dave has this definition that he's kind of been going with, and, it's, and, and this is how the definition goes. Faith, throw up the next slide. Faith is trusting and obeying God no matter what. Trusting and obeying God no matter what. That's the definition we've been using. No matter the circumstances, no matter the consequences, no matter if it's popular, no matter if it's not popular, no matter if I understand or I don't, no matter if I like it or not, no matter what it is, we trust God. We obey God. That's been our definition. But then when I looked up the definition of fear, this is what came up. Fear, an unpleasant emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. An unpleasant emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. When I was a kid, I grew up in a little town called Libby, Montana. Has anybody heard of Libby, Montana? One person? Okay, because I've talked about it before. And Libby, Montana, we had the Libby Crick. That's how we called it, right? Crick. We say Crick, good old 
Montana way to say it, Crick. We had this place called Libby Crick, and, the, and on Lib- Libby Crick, there was the Fifth Street Bridge. And on the Fifth Street Bridge, in fact, I think I have a picture of it, we would jump into, we would jump into the Libby Crick on the Fifth Street Bridge, and it was about eight feet off of the water, maybe 10. And there was a hole, a little, little deep hole there. There was about six, seven, eight feet deep. And we would jump off the bridge into the water. And what was great, and now at, at 8, 9, 10 years old when I started doing this, and I can't remember exactly what age I was, but I know I was really little, and I told my friends, don't tell my mother, she'll kill me. And, and I remember jumping into that water, and we'd float down a little ways and get off the bank, and then we'd climb up, and we'd do it again. We did that over and over and over again. By the way, if you're a young person in here, um, you, you may want to not do that, okay? It was probably dangerous, uh, but it was a small little crick until it got down about 500 yards and there was a railroad trestle over the creek. And in that railroad trestle, it, from there, it w- another maybe 100 yards into this raging river called the Kootenai River. And so we, we were, you know, I, as a 10-year-old, I didn't go down and jump off the trestle, but a lot of the high school students would. And then we moved to Washington when I was like 12 years old. And, and I would go back every summer. And every summer, I would get a little more courage up and a little more courage up. And finally, when I was 15, I was back there in the summer staying with my friends. And they're like, let's go down to the trestle and try to jump off of it. So we went down to the trestle, and there's another picture of it. I'll, I'll show you another right there, yeah. And we would go to the trestle, and we would climb up the trestle, make sure a train wasn't coming. And we would, and then we would kind of climb down to that lower beam, and we would jump off of that into the creek, and we'd float down a little ways before it got to the river, climb out, and do it again. And it was exciting. Now, the, the really cool high school kids, though, they would climb up to that top. And I'm not kidding. They would climb up to the top, and they would jump off of that into a crick. They had no fear. Now, the biggest fear I had, and I never did that. I'll admit it. I never did that. I always jumped off. The, the highest I got was the railroad track part. But I was always afraid of this. Somebody was going to push me. You know, like, like the moment bungee jumping when they're, when, you know, they're, you know you're, they're holding on to you like this. Believe me, I've never been bungee jumping. It never will. Why jump off a perfectly good bridge unless it goes into a small crick? So they're holding on like this, right? And then they go three, two, one, and they kind of give you that nudge to go, and they push you, just give you a little shove. I think sometimes in our faith walk, Jesus wants us to overcome our fear by giving us a little nudge, by giving us a little push. And I think we're afraid of that. We're going to go through uh, uh, some text today, and, and it's, it's, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 22. And this is the story of Jesus and Peter walking on water. And I'm going to read this to you. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come out on the water. And Jesus said, come. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, crying out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? And when he climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, 
you are the Son of God. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it is in our lives, Lord. And as we look at overcoming our fear and running toward faith, God, that you would just speak to us and you would bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So sometimes, sometimes we are forced to go. I want to set this up a little bit because here's what happened with Jesus and the disciples is they found out that John the Baptist had been murdered. He'd been beheaded by Herod. You guys all know the story. And then they, and then they found out this. They found out that there were all these people gathering up and, and uh, one after another after another that added up to like 5,000 people. And they're like, Jesus, how are we going to feed all these people? It was like 5,000 men, by the way. And there was another maybe 10 to 15,000 with women and children. And, and they're like, Jesus, how are we going to feed all these people? Just send them away. And Jesus is like, no, no, we'll feed them. And then this great miracle happens, and they feed these, you know, 15,000, 20,000 people, and they feed them all. And then, and then the dis- disciples are like kind of wanting to bask in their glory a little bit. They're like, oh, then we fed all these people. This is awesome. We got all these leftovers. Let's go have a feast. And they were basking in that a little bit. And Jesus said, wait a minute. You guys need to leave right now. And they're like, Jesus, why do we need to leave? And Jesus is like, I need you to leave. And in a very forceful, very militant style term, he said, I'm making you get in the boat. Get in the boat now and leave. Because he didn't want the disciples to be basking in that. He wanted them to get to their next destination. And he's like, go now. So he made them get in the boat. Sometimes in our, in our walk, we're forced to go. And this part of that fear thing is, is we're forced to sometimes do things that we don't necessarily want to do. You know, the other story in the Bible there where somebody was forced was the story of Jonah, right? And, and I know we love to tell that story in our, in our, you know, in our Sunday school classes and those kind of, and we tell our grandkids and we tell our kids the story of Jonah and he got swallowed by the whale and he was, and the Ninevites, go Jonah, you know, but, but really Jonah was disobedient. God was saying, you go there. And Jonah was like, I'm not going there. Those people don't deserve your love, God. They don't deserve your grace, God. They don't deserve your mercy, God. They don't deserve you. Just wipe them out. I don't need to go there. So he gets on a boat going the other direction. And what happens? Well, they throw him off the boat because unless they throw him off the boat, the boat's going to sink. So they throw him off the boat. He gets swallowed by a fish, and he gets spit out on the shores of Nineveh to go into the city to share God with people. He was forced to do something he didn't want to do. And oftentimes in our own lives, that's what happens. God forces us. God forces us to do those things that we don't necessarily want to do. And sometimes it's so that we can overcome our fear. Sometimes we're forced to go. I remember one time I was on a... I was on a flight to, to, from Seattle to Denver. I made done the flight to Denver before. You know how Denver can be a little bumpy going in and stuff. And then from Denver, I used to fly all the time, by the way. I, I remember one year I, I, I made, uh, I made uh, 27 trips just to Sioux Falls, South Dakota in one year. Now, who goes to Sioux Falls, South Dakota? I did, okay? Anybody else flown into Sioux Falls? One person? Yeah, you know how that airport is. You, you come in at a bank, you go down to a cornfield, and they, like, land. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> But we were flying in this, we had a little, little, little plane, we're flying out, one of those kind of planes, we're flying out of Denver, and we, and we get up to altitude, and it was, a, it was a small plane, but it was big enough for the flight attendant to have one of those carts, one of those little flight attendant carts, but it was skinnier than the skinny ones, right? And, and we're getting up to altitude, and he's like, you know, a Diet Coke and a, a Pepsi and a whatever they're serving, and, 
and this was Alaskan Airlines, and, uh, and, and, all, and all of a sudden, literally, without any no, notice or anything, we didn't feel any turbulence, the bottom poof, drops out of the plane. And, and it was probably three to five seconds, what felt like three to five minutes of sheer terror and the cart went up, and things spilled, and little, you know, the little guy helping him. He went, I mean, it was it was crazy. And the pilot came on and said, well, "We we we had we had an, uh, lost some altitude. We hit a thermal, and we lost altitude. We lost about 800 feet of altitude, instantaneously." And you fall like that, in that moment. I f- I mean, every, I I felt like it's over. I I felt like there's there every everything was hopeless. And I literally, I was like, okay, they made us turn off our cell phone. Do I have time to turn it on and call my wife and tell her I love her before we hit the ground? What do, and all these go through your mind in three to five seconds. And, and, I, and, I, and, and literally, I was like, okay, I'm just going to sing. And I, and I think I was singing out loud. I still to this day don't know for sure, but I was singing, and I was praising God in that moment. Because if I'm going to go out, the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to be singing and praising Jesus. Because guess what? When I get there, I'm going to be doing it anyway, too. So, but everything seemed hopeless. And I think the disciples, they had all this great stuff happen. Jesus sends them out on the water. And and in that moment, they get out on the water. And for them, everything seemed hopeless. See, sometimes our fear, when we look at fear, it, it, it cripples us because everything seems hopeless. It says in verse 24, And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted, which means violently struck. See, like the Jonah story, it's, the, it's actually the same terminology. In the Jonah story, it was violently striking the boat. The winds and the waves were violently striking the boat, just like what was happening to the disciples. The wind and the waves were violently striking the boat, and these guys thought everything was hopeless. They thought, we, John the Baptist is dead. We had this amazing miracle. Now we're going to die. It's all over. And how many of us in our lives... How many of us in our lives had those moments of fear when we really thought it was all over? Or we've lost our job and we thought it was all over. It's all hopeless. You know, a couple years ago when all the foreclosures were happening, we lost our house and everything's hopeless. We can never get out of that. And a few years later, you find yourself, you're buying a house again and God got you through it. And we get paralyzed and we think everything is hopeless. And everything is going to end. And how do we know that the disciples thought that everything was hopeless? I think it's interesting. When we look at, when we look at the next verse, it, it, go, it says this. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. So they're in the storm, and Jesus just kind of casually strolls out on the lake. He's like, what's up? What's up, people? I'm Jesus. I'm walking on water. No big deal. And then when the disciples saw him on the lake, they were terrified. It doesn't say they were totally terrified about the wind and the and the. It says they were terrified because they saw him, and they said it's a ghost. And they cried out with fear. Here's why. They thought they were either dead or dying, because in their world in that time they thought when you went from this life to the afterlife you saw phantoms, you saw ghosts, and they thought oh we're dying there's there's a phantom right there some ghost walking on the water. Oh man, Peter, you know, are you sure you're going to heaven? What's up? You know, I mean, this is what they're thinking. They they're freaking out. See, sometimes when everything seems hopeless, we assume the worst. 
We just ought to, we assume the worst. We think, oh, we must be dead. There's a ghost. I must be dead or dying. Oh, guys, it's been nice knowing you. Okay, it's over now. This is it. How many of us have felt that same way? There was a guy that, uh, a guy that died, and he was a golfer. He, he died, and he got struck by lightning on the golf course, and, 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 he, and he passed away, and he gets up to heaven, and, and he's like, oh, wow, heaven's a wonderful place filled with glory and grace and golf. And he's like, I'm going to go golfing first day out. He goes out golfing. He's like, I get, he gets to the golf course, and he's like, hey, uh, can, I, can, I, can I team up with you guys? And there's just these three guys getting ready to tee off, and they say, sure, join us. And he's like, so what's your names? And one guy's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Peter. You know, I was one of Jesus' disciples. You know, no big deal. And the other guy's like a little guy, and he's like, uh, my name's Paul. I was an apostle, you know, kind of killed Christians for a while, but kind of came around. And gets the other guy, and the guy, they're like, don't ask him who he is. Don't ask him, okay? Don't ask him who he is. It's like, okay, okay. So they get first hole, they tee off. They all hit 320-yard drives except for the other guy. He hits one 350, like way out there. And then they, then they you know, they all, they all par that hole except for the other guy. He birdies that hole. And then they get to the second hole, it's a par three, and they hit up on the green, and they're all within 10 feet of the pin, except the other guy, he's 10 inches from the pin. And then they get to the third hole, and it's his par five, and they all have crushing drives, and, and, and they're all like, yeah, but I think we better lay up. So, so the, you know, the guy that just died, he lays up. And the next guy, he, you know, Peter, he lays up. And then Paul, he gets up, he, lay, he lays way up because he's a little guy. And, and, and then, but then this, this other guy gets up, and he crushes it. He tries to go for it, and he hits it in the water. So they're like, oh, <laughs> he hit it in the water. And all of a sudden, he goes walking out on the water. And the guy's like, who does he think he is, Jesus Christ? It's like, no, he is Jesus Christ. He thinks he's Tiger Woods. <laughs> but isn't that, isn't that for us? We get this fear and we assume the worst. We get this fear, and it paralyzes us. We get this fear, and we won't go for it. We get that opportunity for the new job that we've been praying for, but we're afraid of what the interview is going to be like. Don't worry. The interviews are always bad. You're always worse than you think you are, by the way, in those interviews. Just kidding. But we let fear paralyze us from opportunity. There was, a, there was a man who got a phone call from, from his doctor, and the, and the, doctor, the doctor said, hey, I, I wanted to call you back on your medical test that, that, you, that you had, and I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. And the man said, well, okay, doc, give it to me. I want the good news first. Well, the good news is that you only have 24 hours to live. Like, well, if that's the good news, then what's the bad news? He goes, well, I couldn't get a hold of you yesterday. See, sometimes, sometimes we assume the worst, but that leads us to assuming, and sometimes we assume that reality, that, that we, reality isn't real. See, we have to believe sometimes the reality isn't real. We, because fear will paralyze us to the point that we will make up stuff in our minds how bad it's going to be, and we will let that stop us from taking a step of faith. That fear will paralyze us to such a degree that we will think stuff is going to happen that would never happen. How many of us have done that? 
I remember uh, a, uh, I, had a, I had a job interview, and it was with this really big headhunter firm. And, and I was interviewing for a buyer position with a company that some of you have heard of called Nordstrom. And I was interviewing for this position, and, and I was so nervous and so afraid. And I only, that, this is my first step, meeting with the headhunter firm that was hiring for the position. And I got in there for the interview, and the first question the guy asked me, and it threw me off, he said, do you have reliable transportation? That was his first question out of the chute. I was like, and I had studied for questions. I was prepared for, how, you know, what, well, if, if, if you can buy shoes at this price and you can sell them at this price, what are your margins? And I was prepared to do all that. And, and the first question he asked me is, do you have reliable transportation? I said, well, my, my car's in the shop right now getting its clutch, uh, clutch put in. I was like, what did I, I was, oh, my goodness, I just blew it. And I didn't get the job, thankfully. But I remember just going, this is the worst case scenario ever. And, and the, every question thereafter, I, I stumbled through. I couldn't answer. I was so afraid then. I know I could feel the sweat. And I actually had hair at the time. I could feel the sweat just running down my forehead, not because of hot lights, but because of nerves. It was actually really cool in the room. But how many of us have, have done that? How many of us have been so paralyzed and we, and we get so Everything that's not real is now reality. See, Jesus was like, he immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, I am Jesus, don't be afraid. That word courage there actually means be brave and find some joy when you're being brave. In other words, suck it up and be happy about it. That's what Jesus is saying right there. Be brave. And be happy about it. Because it's me, I'm here. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of. But if we're doing it right, our fear should make us want to oppose it like an enemy and run toward faith. Oppose fear and run toward faith. Now, now here's the thing that I know. I played a little bit of football in high school. I played a lot of basketball, both in high school and a little bit in college. And I sat the bench and I got cut my second year. And that's fine. You can feel bad for me. It's okay. I, but I, look at me. Okay, basketball player, you wouldn't check that box on my little thing, right? But but here's the thing. I know when I have an opposition, what do I do? I have to get to that basket. They're trying to stop me. I have to score. Sometimes going through your opposition is how you overcome your fear. You sometimes have to face your fears dead on. You have to face them square in the eye to overcome them. Jesus says, face your fear, guys. Be brave. Take it head on, because I'm here with you. We have to stay focused. We have to run towards it. You know, one of the things they taught me in basketball was you always fix a spot on the rim, and I always shot towards the back of the rim, because by the fourth quarter, I was a little bit tired and I, and I needed, and when I played in the fourth quarter, I was usually pretty, not pretty tired because I get in because we were winning. Um, but that's the theory behind it, right? We get in and shoot towards the back of the rim. You stay focused on where you're going to hit your shot, what spot you're going to hit it. But how many of us, we don't want to face our fears, so we never step on the court. We never get out of the boat never run towards faith because we let fear paralyze us. 
I wanted to hang on this for just a minute. The, the word I or the letter I here is 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 underlined, and it's a different color on the screen. And and I wanted to I wanted to point this out because Jesus just isn't saying, "Hey, bros, it's me. I'm Jesus. I'm back. I swam out to you tonight. You know, I get back in the boat with you." He is actually telling them this: "Don't be afraid. It is I. It's Jesus." But that but that literally translates in the Greek to the I am. Jesus is saying, it's me, it's the I am. I am God. I am your Savior. I am your Father. I am, just like it said in Exodus, when God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. I am, it's me, it's God. I am. Don't be afraid. The Bible tells us, and this is this is one of those memory verses I remember in the sixth grade, Mrs. Lucas, my sixth grade teacher, and she had this kind of growth on the side of her face, and it had this hair growing out of the side of it, and everybody was scared of her, including me. I get, and, and we had our memory verses we had to do every Wednesday in our sixth grade class. Mrs. Lucas was amazing, too. She was a great teacher. But you're still scared of her, Okay. And I walk up and I'm shaking and I'm like, a, and and I had to and I had to I had to recite this verse to her, this First Timothy. And you know, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of the power of but of power, love, and self discipline. And I walk up to her and I'm and I'm memorizing this verse. Of course, you're cramming right before you walk up there. You're like, rah, 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 rah. saying it to yourself fifty times. You get up to her desk and she has this ruler right there that you always thought in your mind she could hit me with that someday. She never did. And I said that verse to her, and she just looked up at me and she said, "Well done, good and faithful servant." I faced my fear. There are many days I, I'd rather have taken an F on my memory verse than to face her because it was scary. But I never did. I always faced her. Now, sometimes I didn't pass, but. So Sylvester Stallone faced some fears. He was told back in the 1970s that his movie, Rocky, wasn't worth any more than $350,000, and somebody offered him that to buy the rights to it. Maybe they'd make it. Maybe they wouldn't. Sylvester Stallone refused to. He starred in the movie. He produced the movie. He won an Oscar for the movie. It's one of the biggest movies of all time. That movie, Rocky, is, is incredible. If you haven't seen it, um, I don't want to spoil it for you, but, you know, watch it. Okay. But here's Sylvester Stallone. He said this. Every time I have failed, people had me out for the count, but I always came back. Sylvester Stallone made a movie, and he made millions of dollars and became a worldwide phenom. He made a couple of bad movies in there, too, by the way, just throwing that out there. But Michael Jordan, here's Michael Jordan. What does Michael Jordan do? He missed a lot of shots, 9,000-plus. He lost 300 basketball games. He missed 26 game-winning shots. But Michael Jordan said, I can accept failure. Everyone fails at something, but I can't accept not trying. And J.K. Rawlings wrote Harry Potter, and she wrote a little story for her, for her, for her young girl because 
they, they, she went through a divorce. She's a single mom. She didn't have a lot of money, and she writes a story for her daughter. Wrote about three chapters, and her daughter's like, "I want the rest of it." And, and as we know, the rest is history. It's a multi-billion-dollar, you know, world now, the Harry Potter world. And J.K. Rowling said this: "It's impossible to live without failing at something, unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all. In which case, you fail by default." And then there's Nelson Mandela, who was thrown into prison, was in there for like 27, 30 years, president, former president of, of South Africa. But Nelson Mandela said this, one of the most famous quotes. He said, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. What's the fear you need to conquer? What's the fear you need to overcome? Is it jumping off that bridge? Is it taking the risk on that new job? What is it? Whatever it is, you need to focus on it. Get through it. And the disciples are like, okay, here we are. Peter's like, okay, Jesus, if this is you, Verse And the next verse, it says this. If this is you, go to that next slide, Stacy. If this is you, tell me to come. And Jesus says, come. And then Peter, he gets out of the boat. Now, he doesn't just get out of the boat. The text actually reads, it, he, he doesn't just climb out of the boat. He jumps out of the boat. And he lands. Now, I have thought about putting a kiddie pool right here and seeing if I could do this and get in the front row. This is the splash zone right here. I was going to jump off the stage and land in the pool and see if I could walk and do that. I didn't want to get them wet. So Peter jumped out, probably expecting to sink a little bit. But what did he do? He stayed focused. He stayed laser focused on Jesus. And he walked toward Jesus. And then what happened? The waves got a little bigger. And he's walking toward Jesus. He focused on Jesus. Well, the waves got a little bigger. And he took his eyes off the prize. And he sank. He sank. Now, how many of us have taken our eyes off the prize on Jesus and our lives have gotten twisted upside down and you're like, man, what should I do? I should go back to church. How many of us have come back to church because our lives were a train wreck and we decided, you know what, I better get some Jesus back going in my life because I took my eyes off of him and my life got messed up. There's a lot of us in here that have done that. Hebrews 12, it's in one of our discipleship classes that we memorize this verse, Hebrews 12, 2. Part of this verse, it says this, um, you know, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And then it says, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author or the pioneer and perfecter of faith. We need to focus on him. We need to keep our eyes on him, just like you do when you're shooting. You're keeping your eye on the rim. Are we keeping our eye on Jesus? Proverbs 4.25 says, keep your eyes focused on what is right and look straight, look straight ahead at what is good. And what's better? There's nothing better than Jesus. Are we focused on him? Or are we focused on all of our problems, on all the things that could stop us? I was in the hospital on Friday visiting a friend, and, and, I, and I visited my friend, and I prayed with him in the hospital, and then I left, and I, and I, and I see this room 
and there's a lady sitting there, and she has, you know, oxygen tubes, and she wasn't that old. She's probably in her 50s or so, and, and my age, and uh, no comments on that, and, uh, and, 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 and I walked by, and I thought I should stop and pray with that lady. And I told myself, this is what I told myself in the moment, well, I'm so busy, I got to get back, and, all this stuff, and I'm just so busy, and I need to get back. And I, Truthfully, when I got in my car, I said, you weren't, you weren't, you didn't have, you have time to go pray with somebody for two or three minutes. You were afraid. That was the truth. I was afraid of what she was going to think. I was afraid if she wasn't a Christian, what she would say. I was afraid of all of this stuff instead of doing what was right and stopping and praying with her. I walked by. I think I'm pretty good at overcoming fears. But fear overcame me on Friday. Fear overcame me. But then the other thing we have to understand is our actions or our attitudes matter. See, I didn't take action in that moment. Our actions and our attitudes matter more than our aptitude. So many of us are waiting to share our faith or waiting to go pray with a lady like that because we have to get all the knowledge first. We have to know everything and our attitude is wrong and our action is wrong. So many of us are taking discipleship classes or part of that because we want to learn one more thing before we go share our faith. And sometimes we just need to take action with the right attitude, and we need to go for it. And, and you can write in there either action or attitude. You can write either one, whichever one you need to work on the most, because I know for me it's action because of what happened on Friday. When I wrote this message on Wednesday and Thursday of this week, I had attitude in there, and because I didn't take action on Friday, I went in and changed it for me to say action because I needed to take action. But what was interesting is, is a friend of mine named Ali, who I have a relationship with. He knows I'm a Christian. I know he's not a Christian. And, and Ali kind of was talking to me, and I, and I helped steer the conversation in a direction so we, he and I could talk about Jesus. And I shared, I shared a, a piece of information from him about a guy named Ravi Zacharias. Who, Ravi's one of the foremost apologetic experts in the country, enough, if not in the world. And I shared a little bit with him about Ravi, and, and a little bit about Jesus, but a little bit about Ravi because they both grew up in the same country, India. And, and so the next day, I'm sitting at my desk, and, and, and Ali comes in, and he, he says, I have this for you, Dave. And he hands it to me, and it's a, it's a big printed-out article, like six pages about Ravi Zacharias. And he went home, and he looked him up. The seed is planted. And, I, and when he handed that to me, I said, next time we're going to have more of a conversation about Jesus. Is that okay? He said, oh, yes. And I said, do you have time now? And he said, no, I don't have time now. And so he left. I was like, thank you, Lord, for the courage to do that with my friend. And I think it's sometimes understanding that immediately we need to go when we're commanded. Immediately I needed to say something to Ali. Immediately Jesus made them get in the boat. Jesus immediately said to them, have courage. Jesus immediately reached down to Peter when Peter was sinking and immediately pulled him up. And I think Jesus sets these examples for us that we see or we read about, but we don't act on them. And we need to immediately respond. God puts somebody in front of us, and we're like, hey, what's up? Good to see you. I'm waiting for my discipleship class to end so I can talk to you about all this. What about immediately, right then, on the spot, sharing your faith with someone, even if you don't have all the answers, even if you don't know everything? Immediately, 
go when you're commanded. God puts on your heart to go apply for that job. Immediately get on their website and apply for it. What's the worst that could happen? They could call you for an interview or not. Sometimes we need to immediately get out there. And, and we also need to understand that God, when, when, he's, when, when he says go and we immediately go, we have to trust him. We have to trust him. Trust God has you. See, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught Peter. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind calmed down or died down. He immediately reached out and caught Peter. God has you. Take a chance with your faith. Take a chance to invite somebody to the Easter egg hunt. Take a chance to invite somebody to Easter Sunday. God has you. The worst that can happen is they will say no. That's the worst that will happen. But maybe the best will happen and they will say yes. And they will come to church with you on Easter Sunday. By the way, if they say yes, go over and pick them up. It's always, it always is easier to say, hey, I'll pick you up to come to church. And then last but not least, we're going to finish up with this. Honor him with your worship. Verse 33, then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. Truly you are the I am. Truly you are the savior of the world. Truly you are who you say you are because you just fed 5,000 people. You just walked on water and you just got in our boat and you calmed the storm. Truly you are. God, and we're going to worship you. And on this Palm Sunday, as we celebrate Jesus' triumphant entry, the triumphant entry where he was going to his death, what did the crowds do? They laid down their coats. They laid down their palm trees. They, laid, they, they, did, they did all these things preparing for this king who was riding in on a donkey. And they, and they shouted and sang, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest of heaven. They worshiped him. They praised him. But trust me when I say this, Jesus knew that those same people that were praising him as the triumphant king were going to kill him. He was riding to his death. He was riding to that sacrifice. The sacrifice he was going to make for all of us on a cross, for me, Dave Sauer, for you, for you, for you. That sacrifice. And then I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And, and, and that sacrifice he made and that we can make just in our worship. That sacrifice of, of actually singing to him. We have a worship night coming up in a couple of weeks, the week after Easter. And, and what better way for all of us to gather together. And we're not going to have a lot of preaching. We're not going to have a lot of teaching. We're going to have worship we're going to lay down our coats. We're going to lay down our palm trees. And we're going, to, we're going to worship and shout praise and sing to the King of Kings on the 28th. And you don't want to miss it. But as Jesus is riding in on a donkey, and it's, and it's a victory, it's like a victory entrance. He knows what's going to happen a few nights later. He knows he's going to be in a room with his, with his, with his homies, with his disciples. 
And he knows one of them's going to betray him. He knows that one of them's going to say, I'm going to give the one a kiss that you need to take away. And I know for me, the sacrifice that he did on the cross that I have to remind myself and ask God to remind me of that sacrifice so when I walk by somebody in a hospital room and I blow it on a Friday, the next time I'm in the hospital next week or, or, or in two weeks or whenever it is again, I go to the hospital to visit someone, that, that I remember what he did on that cross. And as we together as a family of believers, as we take communion together, we have to remember this, and Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians 11. He said this, On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he said this, This is my body for you. Take this, eat this, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and saying this, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So as we as we take communion together. Remember, Jesus paid it all. What he did for us on that cross was was the most amazing miracle ever because he rose again from the dead and we get to celebrate that next week. And today as you remember what he did for you on the cross, maybe you'll have a, a thought of a friend or a neighbor that needs to know what he did for them. And you'll have the courage to overcome your fear, to be brave with joy and share the good news of Jesus with them. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that we can celebrate life next Sunday. But this week, as we look at this triumphant entry, the triumphant entry to death, and we celebrate communion today, Lord God, that we would remember what you did for us on that cross, but also remember and be reminded of a neighbor or a friend that doesn't know you, that needs to. In your son's name.